Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Um, yeah, so we're in this kind of series which didn't start out as a series about the Lord's Prayer. It started out as me wanting to talk about various ways in which we can pray. And I intended to just do the Lord's Prayer as like one talk. Um, and then I kind of got stuck with it and um, I didn't carry it on to the next one. And then and then thought, right, well, I'll do it on the next one and finish that off. And then we can look at some other ways to pray. But um, we got stuck then. And we basically what we're saying was that rather than just having a, a way in which we can pray the Lord's Prayer and we kind of just rattle it off then actually a good thing to do if you know the Lord's Prayer is to pray it through and then pause at different points of it and kind of go okay what does that mean our Father who art in heaven let's pause and think about that and pray into the fact that God's our Father in heaven hallowed be your name what does that mean and and just pause and think about the names of God so we've been going through these um, and for the last few weeks rather than it just being a one-off and um for this one, I'd actually said to Robert, Robert said in, uh, in the week, what you're going to be looking at. And I said, oh, I think we'll do, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But actually, as I looked at it, I realised I couldn't even do all of that. <laughs> so basically, we're just going to do the first bit of it, which is lead us not into temptation. I don't know if you saw the, the other week. It kind of, it's amazing how it, even in the 21st supposedly secular century that Christian things can still hit the headlines when Pope Francis... Um, said that he had a problem with this uh, prayer in the way that we usually translate it. And uh, you know, he said basically it's translated wrong and um, we shouldn't be praying lead us not into temptation um, because he said God doesn't lead us into temptation. So why would we pray uh, lead us not into temptation? It's obviously a mistranslation and... Um, uh, he said, I'll quote, it's not a good translation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. But I'm the one who falls. It's not him pushing me into temptation to then see how, how I fall. And a father doesn't do that. A father helps you to get up immediately. It's Satan who leads us into temptation. That's his department. I like the Pope. Um, but I think he's wrong about that. And um, I'm not a Roman Catholic anymore, so I can say that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing how this soon became headline news when people say we're in a secular society and I read about pieces about it in The Guardian, in The Independent, it was on Sky News, it was on BBC News, all over Facebook, various posts about it, I don't know if you saw it. And now I started to think about that and I thought, well, it's a shame in a way that people are arguing and falling out about what we say about a prayer rather than just praying. Um, but then I read a blog written by a, a friend of mine called Ian Paul. I was at theological college with Ian, and he's like the super bright guy that you secretly don't really like. And because uh, he's like really mega intelligent, and uh, he ended up getting a PhD and becoming like the dean of the, the college years later. And he's actually a really good guy, and he writes a brilliant blog. And so he actually looked into this and he's like a, a Greek scholar so he unpicked it all and kind of looked at what's going on in the language of it and all of those kind of things and, um, and that really helped me to think again especially as now we're looking at the Lord's Prayer which we've said as well we should really call the disciples prayer because it, it wasn't the prayer that the Lord was saying this is what I pray it was when the disciples said to him how should we pray he said here's how you should pray and he gave them a form of prayer 
which they, they could pray. And actually there's two different versions of it, depending which one gospel you read. There's one in Luke, which is like the shorter form, and there's one in Matthew, which is the one that we usually pray. And some people say that actually um, the way in which it's structured it seems to lend itself perhaps to the fact it's like a poetic feel to it, the way that Matthew's written it, to us being able to, to memorise it and, remember, and have it by heart. And so you know, the reason that Jesus gave it was so that people would really would remember it. Um, and you know that's entirely fine, that's great. But what we shouldn't just do is just pray it by rote as if it's like a bunch of words, um, you know, our Father who art in heaven, Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. It's just, you know, we're supposed to engage with the words and actually see what they mean. And like I say, it's good sometimes to pause and think about them like we're doing in this series. So, um, in fact, let's, uh, like, why don't we stand up and we're going to read together and pray together the longer version, which will come up on the screen if you can see it. Many of you will know it anyway, but let's uh, stand to pray this. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, please be seated. You'll notice on that, I talked about forgiving our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And if you were here last week, you'll know why I think that's a better translation than forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can listen to it on a podcast. So, lead us not into temptation. That's what the Pope was questioning. He was on about how do we translate the original language of the Greek New Testament there and there are actually two main issues number one the way in which we ask God not to lead us and number two the thing itself what it is that we're asking not to be led into they're the two big things that that we're going to look at and it might just sound like little silly semantic differences, but it is an important thing because what we've said in all of these 40 days of prayer and all of the year of prayer so, so, so far is it, the, the, what, what we're praying to, who we're praying to is at stake. The kind of God you think God is will determine whether or not and how you pray to him. The picture that you have of God is really important as to whether or not you can pray to him, what you can pray to him about, what's out of bounds, what is he not interested in, the kind of God he is. And the verb that Pope Francis says that he has a trouble with is the one where we say, lead us not, because he says only the devil would lead us into temptation. But the problem with that is that it's clear who it's addressed to. This prayer is addressed to our Father. So it is God who we're to pray to, Jesus says. We're obviously not going to pray to the devil. It's God who is the subject. He's the receiver of the prayer. So our Father is the one that we are asking not to lead us into something. And of course, it is reasonable to ask this question because elsewhere in the New Testament, like here in James chapter 1, verse 13, he's talking here about being tempted to do evil. You know, there is a temptation to do evil, and I believe that comes from the devil. And he says, when we're tempted, nobody should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone this says quite clearly God doesn't tempt 
us to do evil. It goes on to say, he's the father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. In other words, he only does the good stuff. That's all he's got in the shop, if you like. He hasn't got the other stuff. He's only got that. So if that's the case, why would Jesus say, when you pray, you should ask God, who is holy and good, who the Bible says cannot be tempted or does not tempt, why would we ask him not to tempt us? The Pope says, like I say, isn't that the other guy's job? So the Pope said that actually what we should do is change the wording and translate it so it's basically like, do not let us fall into temptation. But that's a passive thing as opposed to an active thing, and this is actually an active prayer. And it doesn't accurately reflect Jesus' words to go the way the Pope would want us to go. Because the word all the trouble was over is the Greek verb, which means lead into or bring in. And Ian Paul, my very clever friend who knows all about Greek grammar, he says this, grammatically it is a second person singular verb in the active voice and the subjunctive mood, which I'm sure helps us all to understand it. <laughs> so that's that sorted, thanks very much. Well, it didn't really help me either. But as I looked around and thought about it, basically what this means is, Jesus is really saying that when you pray, yeah, you should direct this to our Father, and he's the one that we should ask not to lead us into a particular thing. And it's the thing that we usually translate as temptation, and we think we know what temptation means. We think we know what that word means, because we've got an English word, temptation, so we think we know what temptation means. Because we think temptation means doing something bad. Don't we? We think temptation means doing something naughty, something even evil. We think that's what temptation means. And it does mean that, and it can mean that, but it doesn't just mean that. Now, before we go on there, I just want to talk about the devil for a moment. I'm not going to talk about the devil that much tonight, but he's included in all of this. And we're told here what to do with regard to the devil. In the very next line, the Greek word there is risai, and it means to deliver or to be delivered from. So it's like we're to actually pray regularly, it would appear, to be delivered from the evil one. It isn't isn't from all evil. It's the evil one. We're actually called to do spiritual warfare really regularly and to pray that we would be delivered from the plans, the schemes, all the entanglements of the evil one. That you have an enemy and he's out to get you, and you are to pray and ask your heavenly Father to deliver you from all of his plans and all of his schemes and all of his clutches and all of those things. And if you don't pray that, well, do pray that. Pray regularly. And I'll talk in a couple of weeks' time, probably, because we've got the AGM, more about that. By the way, when did you, ask, when did you last do that, if you're honest? When did you last pray and ask God to deliver you from the evil one. I'm just wondering. So, we are right, it seems to me, to be able to pray, our Father, all the rest of it, God, lead us not into, that's the right way we should translate it, we shouldn't change it, and we should pray and deliver us from the evil one, but that's for another week. But the problem that the Pope had, as I say, is this confusion around the word, what we're being led into, which is temptation. And the Greek word there is pirasmos. 
which again, traditionally we translate as, as temptation. And if you're looking in your Bible, it's probably going to say, most versions are going to say temptation. And that's like a negative translation of the word. But actually, it's better, perhaps in this context, because that's what you look at, to bring the more positive translation of the same word, which basically means tested. Trial. Proven. Like in an experiment, do not lead us into a time of testing. Do not lead us into a testing time, God. I'm doing the Bible in the year again with Zoe, and the way that the the plan that we're on now, it's like a chronological one, it's taken us into the book of Job, and to be honest with you, it's a bit early in the year to be looking at Job, it's all a bit miserable in places, and um, you know, have you ever read Job? It's like depressing, it's long, it's weird, and you have this really good guy called Job, everything's going great, and he's doing all right, and he's a good guy, and God loves him, and God's telling everybody in heaven how amazing Job is, saying, have you ever seen anybody as good as Job, he's great, and he's doing everything right, and then the devil pops up one day in front of God while all the bragging's going on and says, that's only because everything's going good in his life. That's the only reason that, that uh, he's, he loves you is because you've put a hedge of protection, it says, around him. You know, you, you've got you've this wall of fire around him. I can't even touch him. You've put this hedge of prosperity and blessing all around him, so I can't touch him. But if you remove that, you just watch. He'll switch allegiance just like that. He'll switch sides. I bet you. And for some reason that we never get explained, and from our perspective, an earthly perspective, perhaps we'll never understand, God allows a time of testing. Because ultimately he's in control and the devil only operates within the boundaries that God allows him to. He says, okay, you can touch what belongs to him, but you must not harm him personally. And that's Job's test number one. Maybe you've gone through that test. He suffers loss. He suffers grief. Terrible. He loses his wealth. He loses his prosperity. He loses his property. Family members die all in one day. It goes from bad to worse to tragic. It's a test. But then we hear Job passes the test because he, he keeps on hanging on to God. You see, sometimes so two people go through the same thing. One person, it will make them turn their back on God and say, well, if that's the kind of God he is, I don't want anything to do with him. Somebody else will just cling tighter. And anyway, the devil says, that test was too easy. Let me at him again. It wasn't personal enough, that test. It wasn't hard enough. Let me strike him. Let me give him a disease. Let me give him a sickness. And God allows that test too. Maybe you've had that test. Pain and disease. How's, how's your faith? Maybe you're going through that now. How's your faith in those times? All these tests, as I say, they are the, some people, they, they get, they, it drives them closer to God. Like, it's just like they get hammered, but they're like a nail going deeper into the wood. And some people, same thing drives them away. And in the end, all that Job is left with is his wife who comes up to him with this encouraging word, why don't you just curse God and die? Thanks, love. Yeah. <laughs> See, what happened to Job from a vertical perspective 
the way he sees it, the way that we see it, when we go through times, there's just this terrible timeline of awful things that go from bad to worse and never seem to get any better. But the story, as I'm reading it through, makes me careful to judge anything too soon as to whether or not it's really bad or whether it's really good because there's some things that I just don't know and I've got a limited perspective on it and we, and we do well to remember that. I love what Max Lucado wrote in one of his books. He wrote a, a, a thing called The Woodcutter's Wisdom, one of his stories and it says that. He says, there was an old man who lived in a tiny village and although he was poor, he was envied by all because he owned a beautiful white horse. Even the king coveted this treasure. A horse like this had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, its majesty and its strength. People offered fabulous prices for the steed, but the old man always refused. This horse is not a horse to me. He said, it's like a person. How could you sell a person? It's like a friend, not a possession. How can you sell a friend? The man was very poor. The temptation was very great, but he never sold the horse. One morning he found that the horse was not in the stable. All the village came to see him. You old fool, they scoffed. We told you somebody would steal your horse. We warned you you'd be robbed and you're so poor. How could you ever hope to protect such a beautiful and valuable animal? It would have been better if you'd sold him. You could have got whatever price you wanted. No amount would have been too high. Now the horse is gone and you've been cursed with this misfortune. The old man responded, don't speak too quickly. Just say the horse is not in the stable. That's all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can I judge? How can you judge? The people contested. Don't you make us out to be fools. We may not be great philosophers, but no great wisdom is needed here. The simple fact is your horse is gone and that's a curse. The old man spoke again. All I know is the stable's empty. The horse is gone. The rest I don't know whether it's a curse or a blessing. I can't say... All we can see is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed. They knew the man was crazy. They'd always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and could have lived off the money. But instead, he was a poor woodcutter. He lived hand to mouth in poverty. Now he'd proven he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned. It hadn't been stolen. He had run away into the forest. And when he returned, he brought a dozen wild horses with him. Once again, the village people gathered around the woodcutter and spoke. Old man, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. Please forgive us. The man responded, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back. Just say that a dozen horses return with him. Don't judge. How do you know if it's a blessing or not? You only see a fragment. Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? You read only one page of a book. Can you judge the whole book? You read only one word or a phrase. Can you understand the whole phrase? Life is so vast, you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say that it's a blessing. Nobody knows. I'm content with what I don't know. And I'm not disturbed by what I don't. Maybe the old man is right, they said to one another. But deep down they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing, really. Twelve wild horses had returned with one horse. With a little bit of work, the animals were broken and trained and they could be sold for much money. Now, the old man had a son. The young man began to break the horses. After a few days, he fell off one of the wild horses and broke one of his legs. Once again, the villagers gathered around the old man and cast their judgments. You were right, they said. 
This proves you were right. Those dozen horses were not a blessing, they were a curse. Your son's broken his leg, now in your old age you've got nobody to help you, you're poorer than you ever were. The old man spoke again. You people are obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Only say that my son has broken his leg. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? Nobody knows, we only have a fragment. Don't judge life by a fragment. It happened that a few weeks later, the country engaged in war with a neighbouring country. All the young men of the village were drafted and required to join the army. Only the son of the man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man, crying and screaming because all their sons had been taken. There was little chance they'd ever return alive. The enemy was strong. The war would be a losing struggle. They'd never see their sons again. You were right, they said. God knows you were right. This proves it. Your son's accident was such a blessing. His leg may be broken, but at least he's with you. Our sons are gone forever. The old man spoke again. It's impossible to talk with you people. You always try and draw conclusions. Nobody knows. Only say this. Your sons had to go to war and mine did not. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. Nobody's wise enough to know. Only God knows. I'll try and remember that story. Job's friends gather around him. And I've been reading for days how they keep coming with their pictures. They keep coming with their ideas, their stories. They end up telling him off for his not having enough faith and he's the bad guy and this is the reason why it happened. They've got all their reasons as to why everything happened. They're so wise. You must have done something to deserve it, they say. But you see, what we see as a temptation or a tragedy from heaven's perspective could just be a, a trial or a test. And if you ever took a test at school, you're going to know something about tests. Whenever you take a test, the room is silent. So Job sits there going through all this stuff and God doesn't speak for many chapters. His friends do, babbling nonsense. And at the end, when God finally does speak, he doesn't provide any answer to the why questions that Job's been asking. Basically, God just says, you didn't even understand the subject. But you carried on anyway, so you passed the test. And Job, it says, ends up way more blessed in the second half than he was at the beginning of his life. Now, I don't know if there's anybody here, but maybe you've been through a test. You know what it's like. And at the time, heaven seems silent and you couldn't figure it out, but you didn't bail out. Actually, you could be right in the middle of such a test right now. That's the thing sometimes. We don't know we're in the middle of it. It just seems like it's normal. Don't give up. Stick at it. You're not at the end yet. You just might be right in the stinking middle. The hard time. The lonely bit. But God hasn't forgotten you. Another test, we showed it on the video a couple of weeks ago before we took up the first fruits offering. And I'm sure some people looked at it. If you didn't really know the story anyway, you'd kind of think, that's a bit of a weird thing. About Abraham and how he, he says that one day God tested Abraham. And he said to him, take your son, your only son who you love, up a mountain. And there I want you to sacrifice that miracle son that I gave you up on the mountain. And so Isaac goes up the hill carrying the wood. And he's saying to his dad, dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's like, uh, God will provide that's all he knows doesn't know how but he's trusting God 
And then just at the last minute, I remember hearing somebody say once, as he's going up one side of the hill, he doesn't know, but coming up the other side of the mountain is a ram. And at just the right moment, just when it seems like he's going to have to really do it, God stays his hand and sends an angel. He says, stop. I don't want that. I'm not like those other gods that require human sacrifice all around here. You don't have to do it. But now I've tested Abraham. Now I know. Now I know you love me more than anything. That's what the test was. Do you love me more than anything? I don't want your son. I want you. I'll provide. And it's a test. See, some Bible translations take this phrase in the Lord's Prayer and say, save us from the time of trial. What do you think of that? When we're praying that in the Lord's Prayer. Save us from the time of testing. Do you, do you think, knowing what you know about Jesus, that he might tell his disciples regularly to encourage them to pray? When you pray to your Father, who loves you, is in heaven, regularly pray to him and ask him, please don't lead me into a time of trial and testing. I think so. I think you can pray that. I think it's really wise to pray that. I don't want any more tests. Thanks. I don't want any more tests than God wants for me anyway. I definitely don't want that. I would be happier, please Lord, put the hedge of protection around me. Put the, put the wall of fire around me. Put that, all that blessing around me and all of that protection and all of those angels and whatever else you've got around me and around my family and, and everything that I've got. And if there's any other way at all that you can test my heart and, and refine me and prove me and mould me and make me and shape me into what you, what you want me to do, then just have me have to go through times of loss and times of pain or times of sickness and disease and times of suffering. If there's any other way, I want that. I'm, I'm asking for that. I want that plan, please, in my life. I'd rather not learn the hard way. I'd, I'd rather... Not have to learn from all of my mistakes. And, and lead me not into a time of testing. Please. And actually, I think we can pray like that because I know somebody who prayed like that. And his name's Jesus. Didn't Jesus pray something like that one time? When the God who told, the same God who told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the only son that he loved, and took him up a mountain. Well, one day Jesus went up a mountain. Jesus went up a hill called the Mount of Olives and there he went into a garden and he knelt and he says that he was praying so hard he was sweating blood when he did it and he was crying out to his father is there any other way? Any other sacrifice for sin other than me? Is there any other than my blood being shed? Are there any other animals? Have you sent some other animal up the other side of this hill? To be able to be the sacrifice for sin. Hebrew says that he cried loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He's like, God, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other, any other lamb? Heaven's silent. No. Lord, Father, do I have to drink this filthy stinking cup full of wrath and evil and sin and all of that for them let your will be done 
because the old hymn says, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Do you know that one? There is a green hill far away. On that hill, Jesus passed the test that we would always, always fail. So now, now we can pray, Lord, let me not come into a time of testing and a time of trial. Or even, it could be, some people want to translate it as when I stand before you on that final day of testing. You see, the good news is Jesus already took that test and passed for me and for you. But that doesn't mean, even though we pray that, and even though I encourage you to pray that, I know, I'm pretty sure, we'll all have tests in this life. And the test, though, is the difference. The tests that the Father sets are never for our punishment. Now, they're all for our promotion. The tests the Father sets are for our promotion and not for our punishment. Father Richard Rohr has written a lot about the two halves of life. He's looking at a lot of the psychology of Carl Jung, who described the two major tasks of any human life. He says the first half of our life is built, building our sense of identity, of importance and security. He says some people never go into the second half because they never get out of trying to get that first half sorted out. They never find out who they really are. And I believe the only way that you can find out who you really are, by the way, is by getting closer and closer to the God who made you and finding out from him. But we live in a culture that's all about the first half of life, the first half kind of life, about establishing an identity. What makes me different? What makes me significant? How can I be a success? Who am I? What do I do to do that? Getting a home, having relationships, perhaps having a family, community, security, building a platform for my life, credentials, externals, formulas, certificates, rewards, prizes, titles that other people bestow upon us. This is how we can build the first half of our life. They say that the only way you can ever come into that second half, though, is not through the experiences of building success, but through what they call falling. Through failure. And through significant loss, you come into the second half. And because while you're down there, you don't just stay down there and wallow in it, but you get back up again and you pick something up while you're down there that you're going to take into the next part too. See, the first half, they say, only starts to finish when you find that what you were measuring your life by in the first half of life, you were using the wrong stick to measure it with. Your successes never satisfied you because actually, your life was never about you. That's the reason. You're never going to have a satisfying life that is all about your own plans and your own dreams and schemes and ambitions. And, and what other people think about you and what they try and show you that life is all about. Because actually, what they think you are is never you anyway. You're just trying, if you want to, to build an acceptable kind of you to be able to show them. To keep all of them happy. The second half of life only starts, and you see, this isn't about getting old. We think about the second half of life, you think, you know, you get to about my age, and now you're in the second half of life, middle age and beyond. But actually, you could, you could live a really, really long life and never come out of the first half. 
Some people live the whole of a very long life and never come out of the first half of life. And yet at the same time, I've met some young people and it's usually, it's been people who've come through some significant tests and trials. Some people, perhaps I think about a, a young guy I know who had, from a very young age, who had all kinds of cancer treatments. And he's just got this wisdom now. And he sees life differently than, than everybody else around him who's anywhere near the same age. It's not about age, it's about depth. Jung wrote about his own experience. It was only after the illness that I understood how important it is to affirm one's destiny. Then to experience defeat is at the same time to experience victory. And the privilege of life is to become who you really are. The privilege of life is to become who you really are. In other words, you only find your real fulfillment, your, own, your real purpose and identity at a much deeper level than the, trying to build a positive image for the rest of the world. When all of that gets stripped away, and life will do that at times, Sooner or later, it can happen to everybody. And it's a test, and it's a trial, and you come through it, and there's a promotion at the other side of it. You see, you won't hear this from the prosperity gospel kind of stuff, because actually, they don't know anything about the second half. It's all about how you can do well in the first half. But sooner or later, we'll go through it. Some kind of testing, some kind of trials, some failure, some sin, some event, some person, some humiliation, some death, some relationship will end or some relationship will begin. Something that you just can't deal with. Something that your present knowledge just can't cope with. Your present strength is not strong enough. Your present willpower is not powerful enough to be able to deal with. You won't just be able to grit your teeth and get through it anymore. You'll find yourself that you're not the man with the plan. You're not the girl with the pearl. <laughs> Whatever. At rock bottom, you look up and God's there. You find he was there all the time. You're not with me. All the way. Sometimes carrying me, always with his hands around me, wiping my tears, putting them in a bottle. Because our God is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he does know suffering, and he does know tests, and he does know trials, and he's got a higher order in the chaos. And all that mess that was so painful to walk down, all that broken glass that I was walking along, that higgledy piggledy broken glass path actually wasn't leading me away from God, it turns out, but was actually the path home to him and kept bringing me back to him. And it was never, ever about the Father testing me to punish me. But he was allowing a test to promote me if I'll receive it as such, which is a choice. It was about me losing some of my false self some of my roles and titles and the image that I wanted to present or try to create because other people around me, if I wasn't that person, might not reward me, might not applaud me, might not receive me, might, might reject me, they might punish me. The test was about me finding that actually I'm not who I thought and I'm not who they thought and even more, God is not who I thought he was because I'd made this little idol God that was looked a bit like me, who had to 
answer prayers the way I wanted them to be answered. And I have to have every idolatrous image of that God that has to do what I want the way I want it smashed. And usually he smashes it on me. And that's why, if you've ever had the privilege of holding hands with somebody who's dying, like in a hospice, and spend a bit of time with somebody like that, you just see, see, sometimes somebody can come into the second half of life in the last couple of days of life. I've seen that happen. People who've so lived for the first half of life, and now in the, in the second half, that happens in the last few hours even, and suddenly they start to see what's really important, what really matters most, and what didn't matter at all. And that's why a lot of people cry in those moments more than anything, not because they're dying, but because they realise, I never really lived. So, please listen to me as I'm wrapping up. Don't, don't pray for God to test you. He'll set the tests when he thinks you're ready. And you'll never, ever feel like you're ready. So pray, Father, I want your kingdom to come and your will to be done, but lead me not into the testing times. And next week, or in a few weeks' time, we're going to look at that in the next line, which is deliver us from evil. Okay? If you'd stand, I'm going to read a poem. that I, When I first became a Christian, I, um, I read it and I thought about it for years and I, I kind of love it and I also kind of hate it. And it finishes up with the word amen. So um, when we finish it, if you want to, if you want to say amen, then you can say amen too. It's by Adrian Plass. It's called When I Became a Christian. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, I think. I think, amen, amen, I think, I think I say, amen. I'm not completely sure. Can you just run through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said, you could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. Do you still want to follow me? I said amen. A bit. A bit, amen, amen, a bit. A bit, I say amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit. Well, yes, I've made my mind up and I say amen a bit. Then I sat back and thought a while and tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you want to follow me? I said, amen. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get this clear. Can I just run through that again? You say that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. <laughs> the cost is you, not half of you. For every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, Amen.
I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord, I said. I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then and think about my son. Tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Man enough to care for those who no one wants to know? Man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand up at the end, the moment of betrayal at the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue and man enough to cry? When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown. Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down. Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Amen, amen, amen. I say, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.